Hey, good morning, everybody. So glad you're here today. And if this is your very first time here at New Life, we are thrilled that you're here. I hope I get a chance to meet you when we're done here today. And uh, I just hope that, uh, that, that uh, as you look for a church, as you're searching, that the Lord would just uh, give you real peace in that search. And, and of course, what I would hope is that it leads you right here. And so if we can serve you in any way or, or pray for you, we'd like to do that. But we're just so glad that all of you are here today. We have just two more messages in this series that we're in called Drifting. We have today and next weekend. And let me just encourage you to be here next weekend. Just go ahead and plan on it because where I think that uh, God is going to land this series, where we're going to have our finale next week is just so powerful that I don't think God wants you to miss it at all. But today, I would like for you to please take out your Bibles and open to the book of Revelation. Yes, you heard me correctly. The book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. It's not one we turn to very often, but if you would, find the book of Revelation and find chapter 2. Now, while you're finding that, let me just tell you that that the one who wrote the book of Revelation is the, is the Apostle John. It was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, and he writes to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, where is the province of Asia? Well, the biblical province of Asia is actually modern-day Turkey. So if you know where Turkey is on a map, he's writing this to seven churches that were spread out basically through Turkey today. And as you read this special message that John has for these seven churches, it becomes very clear that five out of those seven churches had drifted significantly from where they started. Five out of the seven were absolutely headed in the wrong direction. And, and, and when we learn about all the reasons for why they were drifting, you will discover that it is very much for the same reasons for why churches and Christians drift today. John's warning and his counsel to these five churches could so easily be applied to many churches in America because the issues are the same. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at these five drifting churches that John writes to, and we're going to just take them one at a time, the same way that he addresses these five churches. So we're going to start with the very first one, Revelations chapter 2, verse 1, and he's going to write this message to the Christians that were residing in the city of Ephesus. And it starts like this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Who is John referring to? Who's this one that walks among the stars and the seven golden lamps, all that? He's talking about Jesus. So he's like saying, hey, you Christians in Ephesus, I'm writing this to you, but this message comes right from the Lord. That's what he's saying. He says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. That actually pretty good. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That's a good commendation. But he's saying, you know what, I'm telling you something good, but what I'm about to tell you far outweighs the good. Look at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You're doing some good things, but here's the problem. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Man, that is a pretty strong rebuke, isn't it? 
He says, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. You might have a translation of the Bible that says, you have forsaken your first love. What does John mean when he accuses this church in Ephesus that they had forgotten or forsaken their very first love? He's talking about that love and that passion, that drive for Christ that we so often see in somebody who is a brand new believer. Have you spent much time with somebody who's brand new in their faith? Man, one of the, the tra- you know, trademarks of somebody who's new to the faith is they're excited, aren't they? They're passionate. They don't care who they tell. They're going to tell the whole world. They'll tell everybody at work. They'll tell their neighbors or tell their family. I'm following Jesus. He has rescued me. There is just this, this love, this passion for the Lord that just exudes out of them. And so Paul is saying, or excuse me, John is saying to these Christians, you've lost that. You've lost this zip, this passion. Where did it go? What you ha- first had is gone now. Where, where is it? A similar thing can happen in marriages when a couple first meets and falls in love and they get married. What do we usually call that first six months to a year? We call that the honeymoon period, don't we? We call that honeymoon love. I mean, you, you've seen it before. It's, it's when this couple falls in love and, man, they just everything is about themselves. It's, it's uh, I mean, they're just so focused. They're in love. They, they, they hold hands everywhere. It's so obvious when there's a newlywed couple. Have you spent much time with a newlywed? It's annoying, all right? <laughs> No, it's not. I'm kidding. It's really not. But you know, when you spend time with newlyweds, there is no doubt, right, that they love each other so much. It's also true that mature married love that deepens over a lifetime together is very solid. But still, even with that, that deep, married, mature love between two people should not lose some of that honeymoon-type feelings either. So here's what's going on with the Christians in Ephesus and why they were drifting. They were working hard. They were maintaining good separation from worldliness. That was good. But their love for Jesus, this passion, was just gone. Now think of this. It is possible to serve and to sacrifice and even suffer for the name of Jesus and not really love Jesus. To go through the motions and to be driven along by a number of things except the one thing that matters the most, which is a passionate daily walk with Jesus Christ. And to me, this is such a relative, a relative example for churches today that find themselves drifting. Because in drifting churches, you're going to find very busy people. In drifting churches, you're going to find a full calendar. You're going to find volunteers who too are, are weary of serving, but there is a disconnect between all of that busyness and actually a passionate walk with Jesus. So here's something right here at New Life that we can never, ever lose sight of. We never want anyone to serve the Lord just so you'll have something to do or just because that's what other people are doing and you're following the crowd. No, no, no. The very best service to the Lord, the best ministry is that which is driven and comes out of a deep, passionate walk with Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. If you serve here at New Life in some capacity, why do you do it? Why did you start serving in the first place? And why do you continue to serve? I hope that your answer is because you love Jesus. And that's the reason. See, these Christians in Ephesus, they started out working and loving the Lord. And they want to do it for him more than anything else. But over time, they just got busy for the Lord. And they lost their sincere love for him. 
a busy church that we would say is successful, great stats, but drifting far away from a heartfelt devotion to Jesus Christ. So John doesn't mess around. You know what he says to them? He says, repent. Repent and come back, which gives me hope because they hadn't drifted so far that they can't come back to where they're supposed to be. So he says, repent and come back before you lose what little light you have left. And I think this is a time that we have to check ourselves and just ask the direct questions. Am I still in love with Jesus? And am I serving because I'm passionately in love with him? Is that why I'm doing it? Now, if you find yourself going, I don't know, I've lost my zip, I've lost my passion. I'm not saying quit serving, especially if you're in children's ministry. especially in children's ministry. But what I am saying is that maybe it's a gut check time we say, why am I doing what I'm doing? Do I need to repent of anything? Do I need to fall back in love with Jesus all over again? Where am I at? That's what happened to these Christians in Ephesus. More could be said there, but let's move on to the next church. Look down to verse 12. John has something to say to the Christians in the city of Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Who's he talking about? Jesus. He said, These are my words. These are Jesus' thoughts about you. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Again, just like with Ephesus, John has something positive to say about the Christians there, but the positive feelings are are overshadowed by what is negative. He says this in verse 14, nevertheless, I I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. What is John trying to bring to their attention? Well, to fully understand what he means, you have to go back and read the book of Numbers, chapter 20 through 22 through 25. That'd be a good thing for you to do sometime, Numbers 22 through 25, because that is what he is referencing here. You have fallen under the teaching of Balaam. Balaam was a prophet from the Euphrates River area, and uh, when Israel was preparing to come out of the wilderness and take possession of the promised land, there was the king of Moab. His name was, was Balak. He was terrified, terrified. He was like, the Israelites are going to come in and wipe us out. And so he calls upon Balaam the prophet to go and call down a curse on Israel. He goes, Balaam, we're going to fix this right now. You go curse the Israelites so they don't come through and wipe us out. So when Balaam goes to do that, God caused Balaam to not be able to. He's like, you're not going to curse my people. And so Balaam has to give a blessing instead. And so with his plans thwarted, he later tries to defeat God another way. What he does is he encourages the women in his country, the Moabite women, to seduce the Israelite men. And to get them involved in sexual immorality, which absolutely God wanted nothing to do with his people. And to worship the Moabite idols. And so there were two, really, what did John mean when he said, you've fallen under the teaching of Balaam? There's two ways to look at this. I think they're both correct, actually. There were Christians in Pergamum who were falling under the same sins as Balaam. 
And they were worshiping false gods by eating food sacrificed to idols, which was a big no-no back in that day. The Christians weren't supposed to have anything to do with eating food that had originally been sacrificed to idols because it showed like friendship with that. So don't do that. And they were involved in sexual immorality. So there was some real perversion that had crept up into the lives of these Christians. That's the first view. The second view when it comes to the teaching of Balaam is simply this. The king of Moab was like, if I can't beat him, I'm going to join him, and I'm going to influence the Israelites to be like us. And so that's what he had Balaam do. And so the Israelites fell into this trap, if you will. And if you read back to the Numbers chapter 25, you know what the penalty was for this meshing of two people groups? 24,000 people died because of this disobedient act. Because they became like the Moabites for a while. So I think John's referring to Christians who got too friendly with the world. Christians who had become too, um, too consumed with appeasement. You know, too, too consumed with avoiding persecution. And so they, they blended themselves. And John is calling them out on this. Do not make the compromises that the Israelites did with the Moabites. And I see those compromises happening inside the church. And the church today, right now in America, it is constantly under those same kind of pressures to compromise. To compromise your convictions on the Word of God. To compromise your position on certain issues. To avoid bad press. To compromise your integrity to compromise, to compromise, to compromise. And drifting churches today are full of compromises. And Christians who are drifting away from the Lord are full of compromises in their life. And I would say this, that one of the key identifiers of a drifting church is when it has compromised its mission or its, or its, or its message or its mindset away from God's Word to avoid headache, to avoid pushback, or to pursue a perceived unity among people. Again, what was John's message to the church there? Repent. It's not too late. Repent, come back, ask God's forgiveness of that behavior, and come back into a right relationship with him. More could be said. Let's talk about the next church. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. John has a word for the Christians in the city of Thyatira. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Who's he talking about? Jesus. John's saying again, I'll repeat, it's not me who feels this way, you guys. This is how Jesus feels about you. And then he says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, and your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So John, again, has some praise for this church, but not nearly as much as the others. He goes, you're doing more than you did before. And then that's about it. And then look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she was unwilling. Uh, so I will cast her on the bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. So John's got a problem. Jesus got a problem with this church in Thyatira. And what's his, the problem? 
He says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, is there actually, or was there actually a woman in the church there named Jezebel? Probably not. It's probably more of a symbolic reference because nobody, no Jewish family back in this day would ever name their daughter Jezebel for the same reasons we would never name our daughters Jezebel today. Because that name carries with it such a negative, dark past. It's the same reason why if you have an American family who has a baby boy, they don't ever think, you know, maybe we should call him Osama bin Laden. That doesn't happen, does it? Because there are names that send the wrong message. So was there actually a woman in the church named Jezebel? Probably not. But what I think John is referring to is you tolerate that, that woman Jezebel. I think it's more of a symbolic thing. Him saying, like, if you ever said, oh, that Jezebel. It's more like that. You tolerate that Jezebel in the church. And I think that's the strength John was saying. Who was Jezebel, in case you don't know? Jezebel, if you go back and read the, the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament, chapter 16 through 19, you read all about Jezebel. She was the, the idolatrous queen who enticed Israelites to add Baal worship to their religious ceremonies. In other words, it was another one of those things where you're going to take idol worship and you're going to blend it with your worship of God. She was a horrible woman. She was a Jezebel, you know? And that's who she was. And so it's very similar what she was doing or this person. It was kind of like the teachings of Balaam that we read about in the church of Pergamum just a moment ago. But there was this woman in the church that John referred to as Jezebel who taught believers to compromise, most likely, she was teaching believers to compromise their core beliefs to satisfy Roman beliefs and their pagan practices. And why would they do this? They would do this to avoid persecution. They would do this so they wouldn't lose their jobs. They would do this so that they would just kind of blend in and harmonize and not be the salt of the earth and not be a city on a hill. And so John said, there's a woman in the church that's teaching your people to do this. And that behavior led to you know, go ahead and eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols. Don't stand out because of that. Go ahead, and, and it's okay to act like Romans because you don't want to lose your job, do you? And so that, that's really what's going on. She's teaching the Christians to compromise their core beliefs for the sake of peace in their lives. And it's a real temptation even to this day. Um, Billy Graham is somebody that I've looked up to my whole life. Probably, arguably, the greatest um, evangelist with the biggest impact of our time, for sure. And, uh, but way back before Billy Graham was Billy Graham, way back when he was a young preacher um, that nobody had really heard of before, he was just uh, working with a group called Youth for Christ. He and some friends got together and they made some critical decisions about their lives that would impact their entire ministry for the rest of their lives. They wanted to make sure that they were never going to compromise in their walk with Jesus. There was too much at stake. And they said, not us. So what do we got to do to protect ourselves? So in 1948, young Billy Graham and a group of his traveling companions and ministry partners, they met together in Modesto, California, and they sat down and they thought through every single temptation that they might encounter in their lives. They said, this is the path God has us on. What do you guys think we're going to encounter? What temptations are we going to have to resist? 
And so they began to write them down. And, and, and they wrote down things like this. There's going to be the temptation to be shady with the money. So what do we got to do to protect ourselves so we're never ever going to be accused or even thought that we did anything wrong or even put ourselves in a position to do something like that? And so they, they built into their ministry ways where they weren't connected to it. They also said, you know what? We're going to fall under the temptation to exaggerate our accomplishments. You know, we may have 5,000 people show up at one of our crusades, but we'll be tempted to say, you know, 10,000 came. You know, so they decided we're going to do this, this, and this, and we're not going to be a part of the numbers. They're going to, other people are going to do that. We're, and, and Billy Graham, he's the one who said to his friends that day, listen, if we compromise on something that other people would call minor, it's going to open the door to all kinds of moral failures. Let's not even compromise on little things like was there 1,000 people there or 2,000 people there? The one he's most famous for is in that room together. They identified that they were, uh, could easily come under the temptation of sexual immorality. They determined together that one of the most difficult strains on a traveling evangelist was time spent away from their own families being on the road. And they said that's going to be the temptation to open doors to all kinds of inappropriate behavior. So Billy Graham would say later, he goes, we pledged ourselves that day to avoid any situation that would have the appearance of compromise or even the appearance of suspicion. So they committed themselves, that group of young preachers committed themselves to never being alone with another woman if their wife wasn't in the room. And if they had a meeting with somebody of the opposite sex, they were going to do that in an uncompromising way, which means they invited other people into the meeting or they would meet in public places to avoid any kind of suspicious behavior. Billy Graham has been famous for this all throughout his life. Billy Graham would never get into an elevator with another woman if his wife wasn't in the elevator. Billy Graham traveled with a team of people that would go into a hotel room before him and search it out to make sure nobody had snuck in there and, and to try to say, hey, look, there was a woman in there. He took extreme precautions to not put himself. And, and why? Because he said, I'm not going to compromise my core beliefs. I'm not going to do it. And to this day, have you ever heard of Billy Graham compromising those values? No. No, not at all. See, drifting churches, drifting Christians are full of compromises. More could be said, but let's continue. Let's look at the fourth drifting church. Jump down to Revelation chapter 3. Let's look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Who again, who's he talking about? Jesus, the Lord. He goes, these aren't my words, church and Sardis. This is coming from the man. This is coming from God himself. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wow. Wake up, he says. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of of my God. This church at Sardis may very well be the first church in recorded history that died. Okay, it just died. You know, sometimes we refer to churches like Sardis as the frozen chosen. You ever been a part of one of those churches? This is a church that used to be alive, but now they are dead, and, and, and the church in Sardis, they don't, they don't even know it. This is not an exact science, but but uh, my understanding is that most churches in America have a life cycle of about 40 years. 
So a church will be launched, and then usually those first few years of the church, there's great excitement and enthusiasm and evangelism, but somewhere it kind of peaks out, and then a church will begin a gradual decline. Some churches drift or decline faster, others go slower, but eventually they plateau out and they maintain the status quo for years, and then, and then eventually it trickles off and dies, and they've been able to track this in studies, that that's usually about a 40-year cycle. And if a church doesn't figure out how to continue its growth, then it does just eventually die off in about 40 years. So Sardis is probably the church that we could say it had a life cycle, and it ran its life cycle. It used to be alive, but now John says that it's dead. It has drifted off into irrelevance, which is a completely different kind of drifting, but drifting the same. And John says, wake up. You're not done yet. You have unfinished work. And I think that uh, the Lord would want to say that to a lot of congregations in America today. I think, personally, one of the saddest sights on the American landscape today are the thousands and thousands of churches that are dead, that are sprinkled across the nation. Congregations that used to be alive, they were storming the gates of hell every day for Jesus, but now their buildings are littering the communities, and they're, they're, they're empty, or they're dilapidated, and they're really monuments of what used to be something that was alive. You may not be aware of this, and if you aren't, let me tell you. Right now, the current data, the statistics tell us that on average, 4,000 churches close their doors every year in America for good. And I'm giving you the most conservative estimate. Some estimates are much higher than that. Churches are closing their doors faster than we can plant new churches. So you can see this trend, right? More churches are closing than are starting every year. It's another form of drifting. More could be said about this, but, but we need to move on. But Sardis died. They died. Now look at uh, chapter 3, verse 14. This is the last of the five drifting churches. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful, a true witness, and the ruler of, of God's creation. Again, I don't want to sound like a break, broken record, but I just want you to remember, who's he talking about? Jesus this is the Lord's thoughts about you in Laodicea. I know your deeds, verse 15, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Woo. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. John's final rebuke, and what some might argue is the strongest of the five, is leveled at these Christians in the city of Laodicea. He has nothing good to say about them, not one positive thing. He calls them lukewarm Christians. It's the same way that we might say you're a Christian in name only, but I actually don't think that's a real thing. But that's how we would say it today. You're a Christian in name only. Did you know that the Bible had so much to say about drifting churches? So, but these five churches are eerily similar to the drifting that we see happening in church today. Like in Ephesus, they got a lot of stuff going on. They're busy, look successful, but they'd fallen out of love with Jesus. That's happening in churches today. How about the church in Pergamum? Compromising its message, its mission, and its mindset for comfort. I see that happening in churches today. How about the Christians in Thyatira? They'd come under the influence of a false teacher. 
And it led them to all kinds of immorality. How about Sardis? They lost their drive and died. I see that today. And Laodicea, Christians in name only, who bought into this secular thinking and behavior. Friends, I'd just like to say this to you from the bottom of my heart. I would rather see New Life Christian Church burn to the ground from persecution than to drift away because of comfort and compromise. And the promise that the leaders of this congregation are making to you is that we will always lead this church down the road of being a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. That's where we're going to be. But that is no guarantee that you won't drift. We make that promise to you as leaders, but that is no guarantee that you won't forget your first love like the Ephesian Christians did. And that's no guarantee that you won't compromise your own integrity for comfort. And that's no guarantee that you personally won't ever come under false teaching. And there's no guarantee that you won't drift up and die as a Christian. And that's no guarantee that you won't drift away and become a Christian in name only. In other words, you acknowledge with your mouth, but your heart's far away. John's warning to these five drifting churches, I believe, is the same warning that he would give to anybody in this room. That if you find yourself adrift, if you are drifting, if you find yourself in compromising situations, you've compromised your values, or you've stepped into sin, or any of those things, John's message to you, as relevant today as it was back then, is simply this, repent, and that should be good news, because it's not too late. If you have air in your lungs, you can repent and come back. And I just wonder... If something we've read today, if the Holy Spirit has used his word to touch your heart and to highlight for you a dangerous part of your life, an area of drifting. And if he has, then it's very simple what needs to happen next. You go to God and you say, I am sorry. And I'm coming back. I repent of where I have drifted. Lord, please forgive me. I'm coming back. And I don't know if that resonates with anybody in this room today, but I would believe it does. And maybe today, right now, is when John leads us in song, maybe you start a conversation with God. Name it. God, I have been immoral in this part of my life. Please forgive me. God, I have been dishonest with this person. Please forgive me. God, I messed up so bad. I, I'm, I'm not where you want me to be here. Lord, my heart has drifted far from you. Name what it is. Tell God about it. Some of you, this will be the first time you've prayed in a long time. And maybe that prayer starts like this. God, I know it's been a while. I don't know. What is it the Spirit is telling you today? Because in Revelation it says over and over, he who has an ear, let him hear. What are you hearing today? What is God showing you? Would you stand to your feet? John's going to lead us in worship, and some of you are like, I'm going to worship. 
but maybe you just need to pray. We've got a couple of our pastors up here, Mario and Taylor. They'd love to pray with you about anything. Maybe you just walked in very burdened today. I just want to pray with the pastor. They're here before and after services. They'd love to pray with you. But maybe right now you just start a conversation with God. It's time to be honest. It's time to be real. This is a great time to do it too. I mean, life is getting back to normal, right? School starts tomorrow. Lord, I want to get back to normal too with you. Let's sing together. Let's pray together. Let's do some business with God today.